0: But I remember um, when I was driving my son uh, Drew, who's my third son, uh, to school one morning. There was a song on the radio that came on, and it was this uh, very gay-affirming um, song. The lyrics were very gay-affirming,
1: and my dad, out of nowhere, said, "Oh, I like this song," and <laughs> I was I was really caught off guard by that comment because he's a pastor and everything. And I was I said, "Dad, do you know what the song's about?" <laughs>
0: And that's when he looked really puzzled. And I was like, yeah, that's why I like the song. I think I've changed my mind. Um,
1: He surprised me even more. He said, I've never told anyone this yet, but I actually don't think God condemns homosexuality. I think it's okay." And then he said, what do you think about it?
0: And that's when uh, he looked over at me uh, in his 15-year-old self, and he said, Dad, I'm gay.
2: You're listening to Kaleidoscope. I'm Deborah Jian Lee. Today, we're featuring the story of the father and son we just heard, Danny and Drew Cortez. That moment they described, coming out to each other during a drive, it happened in 2013. Before that, they embodied the conservative evangelical lifestyle. Danny pastored a Southern Baptist church in suburban Los Angeles, and he regularly pushed gay and lesbian congregants towards reparative therapy, which, if you don't know, is a widely discredited practice of trying to make gay people straight. And Drew was homeschooled. He even attended one of those homeschool academies that aims to breed culture warriors. But then that moment in the car happened, and months later, they went public with it. In this episode, we're going to find out what happened next. So, hey, a quick word on terminology you'll hear. LGBTQ affirming describes the belief that God affirms LGBTQ identities in their full expression. And non affirming puts limits on that. Of course, there's more nuance to this, which you can find in our show notes. Anyway, back to Danny. I wrote about Danny and Drew's story in my book, Rescuing Jesus. But since the book came out, so much has happened, and I want to share that with you. Plus, now that Danny acts as a consultant to other churches going through similar changes, I ask him to unpack best practices for pastors and churches navigating these tricky waters today. But first, we start at the beginning. I met Danny at a conference a few weeks before he made his views public. At the time, this Filipino-American pastor was leading a multi-ethnic congregation. He had just emerged from years of studying LGBTQ history and scholarship in biblical and modern times, and the experience changed his mind. My conversation with Danny picks up in the moments before he breaks this news to his congregation. So the church elders decide to give you one last sermon to explain yourself to the congregation. Can you tell me about your health in the weeks leading up to that sermon?
0: So during this whole time after Drew came out, um, I had a doctor's appointment and he told me my blood pressure was high. And I I kind of knew why. And so he put me on blood pressure medication for the first time. Um, But the elders also told me um, that, Danny, uh, before you give your sermon, uh, you have to give us your notes so that we could review it. And so this was on Saturday night when I finally you know got my notes all together. Uh, my sermon I sent this late Saturday. I said, "Here's my sermon um and within minutes, I get this message saying, "No, you can't give the sermon." And I was like, "Are you kidding me?" Um, on Sunday morning, I woke up knowing I had to prepare a whole new message. I checked my blood pressure. It was like 197 over like 143. I Googled, you know, my blood pressure and it said, go immediately to the <laughs> to ER. And I knew I couldn't miss the Sunday. I knew this was the Sunday. If, if I don't go to church and, and preach this message, um, I'm not going to have another opportunity. So I remember just praying, God, I pray that I don't have a heart attack. Um, help me this one last time um, to go. And so, yeah, there was just so much tension I I felt, you know, all through my body. Um, um, I thought this was the day I was going to have to say goodbye to the church. I thought I was going to get fired. And, I mean, everything was just, like, crumbling. Um, And so I, I just put together this quick sermon, you know, notes. I sent it quickly to the elders, just this, like, brief outline, uh, and I asked them, is this okay? And they said, yeah, you know, just go ahead and do that one.
2: After you checked your blood pressure, you, you had to decide if you were going to go to the emergency room or to the church. What made you choose to go to church?
0: Ultimately, I chose to go to church to give my message um, for a lot of reasons. One, um, I I knew that this was was, um, going to be my only chance to ever give this message to my church. If I don't give this message to my church, they'll probably never hear it coming from me. and, you know, I was the uh, founding pastor of this church, and I, I felt obligated to tell them uh, for myself, um, you know, where I've been and and what what I believe God had, you know, this, this road God had brought me through. And so there was this, um, yeah, feeling of responsibility. Um, and also I think a lot of it had to do with wanting my, I wanted my son to hear me speak on his behalf he was going to be present at the church he invited his closest friends who he had just come out to there were like three of his friends that were present there and so um, yeah it was important for me and it was just a I know for me a, a moment of, of salvation um, just knowing that it was this, like the this, the light in my head turned on. It just made me realize, oh my gosh, I have I've really screwed up in the past. And, and, and things are going to be different from now on.
2: After you gave your sermon and left the pulpit, how did you feel?
0: I was about to sit down. My second son, Derek, um, was actually sitting in the um, front row for the first time. He wanted to sit with me to support me. He's usually in the back, but he stood up and gave me the longest hug. And when he gave me that hug, I literally felt my blood pressure go down. It was just the weirdest thing. It was like all this, like hiding, this tension that I was holding for months um, was released. And so when I got home, I remember, you know, pulling out the blood pressure um, machine at our house and it, it was normal. My blood pressure went back to like 120 over 80, you know, and I was like, wow. And I remember thinking, oh my goodness, this, you know, I, I've only experienced this as a straight person by extension. But imagine LGBTQ people who have had to live their whole lives in hiding, how much tension they must be carrying for so long.
2: Can you give me a summary of what happened after your sermon? What what was the reaction from your church and what did they decide to do?
0: I think the way that service ended was so powerful in that that humanized it for a lot of people. And so again, we're here, we are a Southern Baptist church, right? Um, and so that Sunday night, we had an emergency congregational meeting. Um, the elders called for one, invited the whole church to come back. Um, I remember being at the house and asking my wife, "Do I have to go? <laughs> I want to just stay home." The most interesting thing happened for me. I began to hear different people in the church. Um, they all started saying, "What if God, you know, actually spoke to Danny? What if, you know, Danny actually?" Um, is arriving at this in the same way that, you know, the people in the past thought slavery was okay and and the church had to repent from that. What if Danny's actually right? And, you know, after, you know, during that conversation, I remember looking at the elders just looking so confused. Um, they, they got caught off guard. They didn't think this would happen. I think in their minds, they were hoping that at a congregational meeting there would be a move to um, call for my termination you know, a vote for um, terminating me. And that didn't happen. In fact, um, the congregation said, let's vote to extend this period of discernment. Um, And ultimately um, the vote was for an additional five months for us to engage in dialogue and prayer and and study. Um, But during that five months, uh, part of the agreement was that I wouldn't be allowed to teach anymore.
2: So what ended up happening after that period of discernment?
0: I, I really didn't know um, what would happen, but thankfully, um, you know, the church ended up voting sixty percent to become an inclusive church, which meant that I would be allowed to stay. Um, you know, forty percent, you know, wanted to remain traditional, and of course, they all left the church. Um, but I was, I was. Um, overwhelmed and surprised that that I was still pastor of New Heart Community Church. And I thought, wow, this, I would have never expected this. And so there was just this gratitude and gratefulness.
2: I know you consult with churches going through this process. Can you tell me what's been effective in making these transitions go better?
0: So, yeah, I've helped a few churches. And I think what's been helpful is being able to speak to their leadership If there's a leadership team that wants to begin to ask the questions, that's where it all begins. And so one of the first things that I usually tell churches is if you think this is a theology or a book that you need to study, um, then that's where you're beginning on the wrong foot. Um, This is about people. If you really want to nuance your understanding of this, it's about meeting LGBT people and hearing their stories and beginning to ask the people within your own church, how do you feel as a gay or lesbian or as a bi or trans person in our church? Um, And then also begin to ask people who have left your church who might identify that way. Why did you leave? And so I I would even say, you know, begin forming relationships with um, people outside of your church, not to change them or not to treat them like a project but just to be friends with them, you know, invite them over for dinner, go out to a movie together, just do life with them. I think a lot of times we think of um, LGBTQ people and we have these images that come to our mind. It it should be painfully obvious that LGBTQ people are, are just normal people just like you and me. But for a lot of people who grew up in the church who have been insulated um, there's a lot of stereotyping that needs to be um, dismantled. And so that's what I would say to a lot of these um churches, especially to their leadership, is begin to form relationships um, with different experiences of of sexual minorities.
2: Have you seen a positive impact?
0: yeah, i've seen I've seen a lot of positive impact. Um, especially gay people in the church who finally are able to come out. And express how they feel it's life-changing um, you know especially people that you didn't know were um, lgbtq people before that you have done life with and then all of a sudden you find out there they had been in the closet um, it changes the way you talk about this it's no longer you know about romans or first corinthians it's no longer about you know a book but it's about people
2: All right, so hmm, let's say you're talking to conservative Christian parents that are in the place that you were in back in 2013. Knowing what you know about kids that have been sent to reparative therapy versus those that have been accepted, what's your advice to parents of LGBTQ children?
0: What I will tell parents um, is that um, the most important thing you can do for your child right now is to listen and to be present. Even though you might have a lot of disagreement, um, take note, they will always remember your initial reaction when they came out. And uh, you know, when, when you talk to LGBTQ people, they'll tell you in detail the day they came out to their parents. They'll tell you exactly what their parents said, exactly how they reacted. Um, but the best thing you can do is to listen. and if you have questions, um, ask it in the most polite way, or ask somebody else you know who identifies as LGBTQ. But do the best you can to to respect your your child's um, journey and to be open to the possibility that there might be some things that you don't understand and that you need to unlearn yourself.
2: How have you seen this experience impact Drew? Like, how has it shaped him? And who is he today?
0: Ever since he came out, you could tell there's this um, burden that was removed from him. He was no longer hiding. And it's just this beautiful um, experience of him um, maturing in, in such a profound way.
2: So many pastors in that same position would have chosen to stay silent. How do you think? drew's life would be different if you had done that
0: um boy that's a hard um, thing to think about i think um drew would have probably still come out to me and if i had tried to keep my job i think it would have deeply impacted the way we were able to parent drew Um, i wouldn't have been able to affirm him i wouldn't have been able to love him the way he needed to be loved I honestly don't know if my son would have survived.
2: We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll hear from Drew Cortez.
1: And so I knew communion was coming. And so I was going to be like, you know what? Fuck y'all. <laughs> I'm going to get up and like dip this motherfucking bread in the wine and I'm going to eat it in front of all of you.
2: <laughs> Welcome back to Kaleidoscope.
1: Like, like and you're going to take it. Like, I'm not going to stand for your nonsense.
2: That's Drew Cortez, Danny's son. It's time to hear his story. That nonsense he's talking about, he's referring to a few things, to the belief that openly gay people shouldn't take communion, and to the fact that moments before, church elders stood at the pulpit and told Drew that he'd only live a full life if he remained celibate. So before communion even started, Drew made his move.
1: I like got up from my seat and I ran down the aisle, and then I remember like looking back and like seeing like my my full family like running after me too, and they're like, "Oh shit, what's Drew doing?" And then, And everyone was just crying. It was just, it was a messy morning.
2: (laughs) (laughs) To Danny and Drew, there was something triumphant about that moment. About Drew claiming his place in church. Uh, But those feelings of triumph would really quickly fade. In the moments and years that followed, tensions rose at church, at school, among friends. Drew ended up alone and on the brink of something terrible. Here's my conversation with Drew. So in the aftermath of all this, how did you deal with all the stuff that was going on in church?
1: Not properly. I didn't deal with anything properly. <laughs> but, you know, I think I was trying to finish junior year of high school. I was trying to, you know, be a teenager. I was trying to be a kid, but that, no one would let me. Like, immediately after that, those moments, I stopped being a kid in everyone's eyes. I was, instead of being a kid, I was that kid. Like the gay one, or the one that was like causing all this ruckus in school, um
2: so what did you do with that
1: i i I like acted out i would i was I would like pretend like I was fine like I would like go out with people, I would like try to have fun, but then I was like going home every night and then just like being really empty and so I kind of just like kept to myself a lot.
2: How did the stress manifest in your life
1: when i was when like my school was being terrible to me and church was a mess, there was a st- period of time where I couldn't eat like it just felt like there was like a whole um like a clasp on my throat where every time I tried eating like it would just close and then I would throw it up and it would like literally hurt for it to go down <laughs> mm. and so those are probably a few days where I couldn't even walk because. I was just in so much pain, and I guess my mental health affected that, like, my body wasn't able to deal with all that stress, so, like, my lower back was just out of the picture, and, like, I couldn't walk for, like, a day or two, and then, after that school year, after I, like, lost a lot of people, and I was I was kicked out of the school, I was really isolated, I, and really lonely, figuratively and literally. <laughs> And I started self-harming for a bit, and and then my health was just deteriorating.
2: Yeah, your dad said you had an infection, which led to toxic shock. What happened?
1: I actually ended up being in the hospital for a month, like in the ICU, and I almost, I almost like passed away too. It, I was just really bad; like my, my body was just like shutting down.
2: Wow. When you were hospitalized and you were close to dying, where did it hurt? You know, like, when you're at
1: the doctor and, like, the doctor says, like, on a scale of 1 to 10, what's your pain like?
2: Mm hmm
1: I didn't really know how to answer that question because it wasn't necessarily pain. It was just, like, a lack of feeling. So, like, I don't know how to gauge lack of feeling because you're just there. And I I don't know what I was waiting for, I guess— I was waiting to die, or I was waiting to get out. Because there were a lot of false alarms, like, they'd be like, oh, you could leave, you could, like, leave in two days, go home, just take these pills, these antibiotics, and you'll be fine. But I'd only be home for, like, a day or two, and then I'd start throwing out blood and shaking, and then I'd have to go back. Wow. And so, yeah, and that happened quite a few times. And so, (laughs) um, my track record wasn't very good, so I was like, what's the point of even going home, even though I want to go home? Like, is, is anything even going to work? It was, I, I don't remember a lot from that year, even after I got out of the hospital. I, I kind of just shut out that whole year. Like, now that I have, like, new friends and, like, in college and I know what real love looks like, I can kind of gauge, like, what was happening when I was in high school and it was just a lot of bullshit love. I call-
2: <laughs> <laughs> Well, it sounds like you're doing great now. According to your dad, you used to be quiet in the face of bigotry, but now you've transformed into this super vocal activist advocating for minority groups facing discrimination. Your dad even said that so much of what he has learned in his journey has come from you. So I'm curious, what has your dad's story taught you?
1: I think his journey has taught me that love is a choice that you have to make my dad, he chose to be loving and he chose to learn. There's a difference between being clueless and ignorant, but then a lot of the times being ignorant is a choice. And you have to make the effort to dismantle everything you've ever thought you knew. That's a conscious effort you have to make.
2: People who who may identify with your story to some extent, what advice would you give them now that you've been through so much already?
1: Yeah, I think the advice that I can give that can be applicable to anybody is to try to surround yourself with good people whether it be in real life or online Um, and just always have something to look forward to no matter what it is like it could be, if it's like a TV show something as small as a TV show like knowing, oh I want to stay alive so I could watch the next episode of American Horror Story, like do that cuz that's enough cuz being alive is enough
2: All right so this is the part of the show where we invite Kaleidoscope's pastor and residence, Aaron James Brown to talk about the lessons from this episode you can take into your life and faith communities
3: Hey Aaron thanks for joining us Yeah I'm glad to be here
2: So Aaron Let's talk about Drew's story. I imagine a lot of people listening to this can identify with those feelings of isolation and desperation. As a pastor, what would you say to them?
3: Yeah, definitely. I think Drew's story is not an uncommon one of someone experiencing isolation after coming out about who he really was and is. And I think whenever you share A truth about yourself it is really hard then to continue to go on living but it is also important to remember that some days the hardest and best thing you can do is to simply live that some days simply celebrating the small things like I got out of bed this morning I brushed my teeth I am living those are important things to celebrate that should not be glossed over or left aside and that your life is precious because you are simply who you are and there's no one else like you.
2: And I imagine a lot of our listeners have also been on Danny's side of the story. I guess, what's your advice to people who, um, who are on the receiving side of someone's story and how can they respond in a way that is loving and inclusive
3: and builds a safe environment for that person? What I learned from Danny's story was how you receive someone's truth, a truth about what they want to share with you about who they are and how they experience the world is so important. How you manage yourself and how you respond to them in that moment, because it will be a memory they carry with them for the rest of their life, especially if it doesn't go well. Your response to someone should always be monitored by making sure that you are protecting the physical and mental health of the most vulnerable within your community or the most vulnerable of the people in front of you. Maybe it's your friend, maybe it's your child who is sharing this really intimate thing with you, but managing who you are and how you present yourself in that situation is so incredibly important because that person trusts you enough to share this story with you. And so you have to receive it with care, but also with Uh, love and compassion and grace in the moment. By receiving someone's story well, you can provide life and a life lived abundantly further from that moment.
2: Aaron James Brown, pastor after my own heart. (laughs) Um, Thank you so much for sharing and for your wise words. Oh, well, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right, everyone. We have talked about a lot of heavy things today. If you are experiencing suicidal thoughts or having a hard time grappling with your sexuality or gender identity, we want you to know that there are resources out there. Things like the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, the Trevor Project, and more. You can Google this or go to our website for a full list of resources. Thanks to both Danny and Drew Cortez for joining us on Kaleidoscope. For links to more about these two, including Danny's coming out sermon and Drew's coming out video, visit our website, casecopod.com. On next week's mini episode, Danny tells us about a startling phone call he received weeks after his church split.
0: Fast forward, um, the church goes through a split in June 2014. I get a phone call about a week later. I was so shocked by it. I was still reeling right from this church split. And honestly, in the back of my mind, I was thinking, oh, no.
2: Tune in next week to find out what happened. That's it for this episode. Kaleidoscope is produced by Dennis Funk with amazing support by co-founder Aaron James Brown. I'm your host, Deborah Jian Lee. You can find out more about the show at kscopepod.com. Our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram is at kscopepod. Thanks to the BTS Center for funding season one. If you're into the show and you want to hear more in the future, please consider supporting us. Our Patreon account is Kscope Pod. Or use the Radio Public app where we get some coins for each listen. And don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps too. Alright, I'll see you next episode. In the meantime, let the world see you. When they do, they'll never be the same. It's like this thing where I'm like, why am I so awkward when I'm just talking?
3: I am only awkward when I'm talking. No, you're not.